You made a big mistake when you crossed me. I'm on to you. Oh. Business dispute. Do you know, I've acted as a mediator in quite a few disputes with some of the boys at the golf club. Yeah, sort of unofficial uh, go-between, uh, you know, facilitator slash, well, you know, just a general uh, good vibe guru. Well, I'll bear that in mind. Just, uh, just that. Cool. The talk of the street. 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 Welcome to episode 267 of The Talk of the Street, an unofficial Cornish Street Catch-Up podcast that's surprised that while Stephen can't remember losing a typing, he has no problem remembering the exact reason why Peter came into the factory six months ago, I'm Gavin. And I'm Cuckoo. For caca? Cuckoo for cuckoo clocks. Oh. Not cuckoo for caca then. No. That's a Faith No More song. It just... It's it's not a phrase that just jumped into my head there. I'm also not cuckoo for cocoa puffs. No. I mean, they're good, but I'm a little old for Cocoa Puffs now. So what is it you're cuckoo for? Cuckoo Cuckoo Clucks. Yes. Oh, do I need to... (laughs) Fox and talk. Cuckoo. (laughs) And literally... We're having a live auction tomorrow. I will be working a live auction tomorrow. I will be clerking it because the the family whose cuckoo clocks we are auctioning, <laughs> caca you're auctioning, yes, insisted on on a live auction, not an online one. Well, it's online and live, so it's been going on for like a week now, online, and then tomorrow it will end in a live auction where people can still bid online and then people who are there can can also bid live with 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 my boss doing the blah 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 blah, blah sold thing. Right. Yeah. Have like Do you need me to say auction talk at the end of it? No. Okay. Yeah, like five hundred I, I was wasn't offering anyway. Like five hundred cuckoo clocks and then cuckoo clock parts. And like a box full of antlers for deer on cuckoo clocks and all sorts of cuckoo clock accessories. So, cuckoo clock accessories? Yes. Like a wall? (laughs) I think this will. And a a small mouse named Jerry? (laughs) Yes. I think this is the first time Benny will have ever been at a live auction before. So, that'll be be a live auction. Really? Why would I? You've never gone to an auction with me before? No. Again, why would I? Because I'm your wife. Mm-hmm. And sometimes you pretend to have an interest in the things that interest me. I have a limit. <laughs> so you didn't... No, you didn't even walk around the corner when there was that live auction at oh, the house around that? the corner. Yeah, that was a live auction. Oh, in that case, I have been to a live auction, but it was outdoors. It doesn't seem to count if it's outdoors. And David Dickinson wasn't there, so... You can see my dilemma. <laughs> but this will be indoors with seating. And David Dickens. And coffee and donuts. So Very good. Very proper. So what are you doing the modelling? 
I'm doing the clerking. So like when something sells, I'm the one I, I write down what bid number won it uh. and for how much. No, my modeling days are over. When I used to work auctions in my 20s, I was modeling. I was, I was holding things up and sometimes wearing things that were mm. being auctioned. Like 70s go-go dancer outfits and things. So I'm not in my 20s anymore. No. <laughs> Your services are, are not required tomorrow. No, no. I think you're the only one who would want to see me in a gold sequined disco dancer outfit. And even that may be a push. <laughs> right. We're not as young as we used to be. <laughs> no, we're not. I'm especially not no, as young as No, you're not be. because you are... Half a century old now. That's a lovely way of saying it. It is. It's a lovely way of thinking of it. Half a century. No, it doesn't doesn't get better on repeat. (laughs) Think of all the history you've seen. (laughs) The Gulf War, 9-11. You know, uh, the... Pearl Harbor. (laughs) Queen Victoria ascending. covid the fall of the British Empire. Margaret Thatcher dying. Oh, hold on. Just let me check. <laughs> yeah, she's still dead. Yes. And what did we do for your birthday, my darling? We went to Chicago. Chicago. Which we talked about briefly last week. But we did. We went to what was Shermer High, mm-hmm. although it's not in the town of Shermer. And it's no longer a high school. Because Shermer doesn't exist. Right. It's a... It's a police station and place where you go to pick up your lottery winnings. Yes. Those two together at last. Yes. But it hasn't changed. It's still that old brutalist building. Architecture, yeah. And we more or less got the angle that it's used that that is used at the start of the Breakfast Club mm-hmm. and got the shot of John Bender walking towards the school yes. is shot right outside of the entrance and the houses that are in the background that I'd never noticed before are the houses that are still mm-hmm. in the background. So Absolutely. That was quite quite fun. And the apartment complex on the left-hand side is the same that you see, I think, when Ali Sheedy gets out of the car. And we saw the Home Alone house. We did. And, and we the went, Home Alone house ah! had somebody who looked like Macaulay Culkin's brother outside it, which was... Yeah. A little disconcerting. Kieran Culkin. Mm-hmm. Yes. Of 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 the succession. Only this man had an Eastern European accent, so yeah. it was not actually Kieran Culkin. Or was Kieran Culkin <laughs> pretending? Or maybe <laughs> trying out his Eastern European accent? Who knows? It was all... He's got time on his hands. And He's we saw some uh, Ferris Bueller places and, and stuff, and yeah, it was, it was nice. Yes. And we got a... And you got... A Gordie Howe jersey. Who's a hockey player. Yes. For, well, he was a hockey player for the Detroit Red Wings. And and we got a picture of you standing in front of the... Um, George Surratt. Yeah. Painting, just like Cameron does in Ferris Bueller. It was great. And we went up in Willis Tower. And, and I faced my fear of heights. Kinda. Yeah, I think I... Put some of this on at the Twitter. Yeah, we 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 went to drunk Shakespeare and saw Macbeth. Yeah, yeah, that was fun. We got to see a man in black underwear and fishnet stockings, which is definitely a Macbeth. Yeah. 
Shall we preamble, my dear? Yes, please. Give us some of that Centurion Cory News. Georgia Mayfoot, the former Katie Armstrong on Cory, has begun a new career as a nail technician with her own business, GMF Nails. If she ever comes back to the show, I'm sure Audrey can set up a table for her in the salon. Start doing nails again or start doing nails as an actor because she's still she's still taking acting gigs. But she also has this business as as a nail technician. The nail salon didn't really work when Alina Pop exclamation point was was doing it. Yeah. Well, that's because it was white slavery. Oh, no. She had a little pop up. Oh, that's right. Hilariously named at the salon. But people on the street don't change their nail polish, their nail polish colour that often. They so don't seem maybe to, just not necessary. They don't seem to get their hair cut very much anymore. We we haven't anymore. seen the inside of the salon or the barber shop except to see people creep into the salon to sleep there. Right. Now that's a commute. Roy <laughs> Cropper is such a popular character that David Nielsen, who plays Roy, now lives in Barcelona with what? his wife to escape fans. He says it's only a couple hour commute by plane, so he's fine with it. He doesn't fly back and forth every day, though. I think so. No, no of course he doesn't. It's only a couple of hours. There's no way in the world that he flies <laughs> to and from Barcelona every day. He lives in Barcelona. Barcelona. Yes. I can't do that. What? Th- yeah, not when, and not after an R. Barcelona. Barth. Barth. Barcelona. Barth. I'm going to say it anyway. <laughs> and finally, another actor has swapped the cobbles for the East End as Chrissy Bond, who played Jenna Kamara on Corey, now appears as a therapist named Sarah on East Enders. And that's Corey News. It was a light. It was a light week this week. A light old week. A light old week on Corey News. Yes. Which, nevertheless, brings us on to our feedback section, which we call "Everyone's a Critic." Tricky, go back in touch with no comment on my pronunciation from last week, so I'm just going to go with that. Awesome. I appreciate that they want to make Chesney dumb. But hitting Henry Newton was a step too far, especially when he knew the issues with the pub. It's not like he didn't know that the pub was close to closing permanently, as his own wife worked there, obviously. Additionally, how many more issues is Stephen going to continue to avoid? It bothers me so much that no one realises just how bad he is. But lastly, watching Todd break his nose on the massage table was fucking hilarious. It was. And it was. Thank you, Chicky. You can send us feedback, it's always welcome. Send us your thoughts and I will probably read them out. Get us at thetalkofstreet at gmail.com or our DMs are always open at Cory Podcast. Woohoo! And now, we'll podcast for coffee. Thanks to Daisy for our coffees this week. Thank you! Daisy sends birthday wishes... To us both. Aww. Thank you, Daisy, for your very generous purchase of multiple coffees. We've been blessed right about recently with the coffee donations. And yes. we are always very, very grateful. So thank you so much. We used them at Starbucks in Chicago. We did. We did. Frappuccino. 
and and the olive oil coffee. It's an expensive business getting coffees out of Starbucks. It's actually an expensive business getting coffees out of Bigby's. Yeah, yeah, Bigby's is more expensive than Starbucks, I think. Six bucks, seven bucks for a latte? Mm-hmm. Bloody hell. Anyway, the talk of the street is and always will be free on your podcast provider and on the YouTubes. But if you think our show is worth anything more than the time it takes to listen to it, and if you want to show your appreciation, you can buy us next week's coffee by going to ko-fi.com, that's ko-fi.com slash the talk of the street. You can also sign up to be a friend of the podcast through the same link, wherefore as little as two bucks a month, Helen. You can get a mention in the closing credits of every single episode. Just think, Helen, you can get your name read out at the end of every single episode. How many times do you say my name during a podcast? I always try and say it once just in case nobody knows what your name is because you don't say what your name is at the start. <laughs> so I always try and say it once. My name is Cuckoo for Cuckoo Clocks. Don't wear it out. There you go. <laughs> Remember, you can always support the podcast for free and get us in front of new listeners by liking, subscribing, rating and reviewing wherever you get your podcasts. And now, this. Uh, welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to last year tonight with me, John Oliver. Just enough time to quickly talk about peroxide bouffant. Ooh, who had a peroxide bouffant last year? Is this just the unfortunate moment that Adam decided to go blonde? That's right, this was Audrey talking about an old winner of the football pools, I think, back in the day, who had a peroxide bouffant up to here. I was Gavin and you were a bad wife. Why was I a bad wife last year? I took you somewhere nice last year, didn't I? Where did I take you? Well, last year was last last year wasn't Cleveland, was it? No. And last year wasn't Indianapolis. That wasn't why you were a bad wife. Oh, why was I a bad wife? Because we were delayed starting the podcast because you were watching Sandman. Yes. Yes, I was. And we were super late starting. Yes. Because I was watching Sandman. Yeah, and I think I was up to four o'clock in the morning editing this yeah. shit. <laughs> I've got my birthday present for myself. A transatlanticism tattoo, which I still have. Right, which you got many, multiple compliments on. Two. When, when we were in Chicago. Was it two? I think it might have been three. A woman in the restaurant said, is that a transatlanticism tattoo? And I said, it is indeed. Uh-huh. I don't know why I said that. Why did I not just say Yes. <laughs> Well, you did, but you said it... In a roundabout fashion. Why did I say it like that? Because you're Scottish. What an asshole. Oh, I just it was felt more so, formal. I felt so bad about saying it that way. She was fine. Ugh. She reminded me of Gemma. She did. She did. She did. And that guy in front of the Jackson Pollock reminded me of Tyrone. <laughs> the guy with the Jackson Pollock shirt on <laughs> yes. in front of a Jackson Pollock painting where yes. you could only see his head and his arms and his legs. <laughs> Yeah, he did look a bit like Tyrone. He didn't have a Romania tattoo in his leg, though. No. <laughs> I'm not sure Tyrone does anymore either. We were ready to head up north to Mackinac City. Oh, that's right. And an international night park to see the Milky Way. How did that work out? Well, there was a wedding and it rained. I had a predicted lot. clouds. Yes. And I think I was right. Yes. I'd got shirts that were labelled too big, that were actually too small, and slippers that were just too small. <laughs> I'd do well on birthdays. 
Faye is sick of Craig's helicopter boyfriend tendencies and takes her frustrations out on a bottle of Prosecco and an unsuspecting Michael. Yasmin throws herself into her fundraiser for abused women while Zidane goes to visit homeless Stu to warn him away from his family. Leanne worries that Toya's jeopardising her bail conditions by joining Spider in his activist protests. Audrey has afternoon tea with her dear friends and confesses the cause of her recent stay in hospital and her depression was never mentioned again. That's true. Or the alcoholism. Nope. Stephen's attempts at helping Carla with her supply chain problems are rejected, so he begins a low-key whispering campaign against her in Sarah's ear. It's Ed's first day back at work and Steve is keen to get his roof fixed so that Cinco Leo will stop stubbing his toe in the scaffolding. As their vacation to Barcelona, oh there's Barcelona, Barcelona again, Barcelona. approaches, Summer and Aaron discover some troubling information about each other. Roy is pretty in pink, Nina's vegan ginger cake is a ruse, Rita suggests she should have put a ring on it. Our moment of the week was Audrey admitting to her friends that she tried to kill herself, and her boring moment of the week was Craig serving Steve with pamphlets about things to avoid while you're driving. And that was Coronation Street, and the talk of the street, this time last year he's moved up so much from that he was handing out pamphlets last year and now he's a detective head of the cid now i think (laughs) we will take a quick break and we'll be right back with this week's recap and we're back shall we dive in my dear yes please now i am depressed and full of existential angst from turning 50 so there will be no jokes this week (laughs) our first storyline is peter's big number two (laughs) Now, oh, on Monday, Peter was You say was no wearing, jokes and then you say that. It's almost like I planned it. Almost. On Monday, Peter has got his number two t-shirt on again. He's found yes. it in the wash. And I posted it on Twitter and said, how many times has Peter worn this shirt now? Mm-hmm. And it's The two. joke being that. Yeah. And a number of people that said, I think it says so on the shirt. It's two. <laughs> Where is that whoosh gif? <sighs> anyway, he meets Carla in Nina's rolls and tells her that he's waiting for the pawn shop guy to call him back, but elephant in the room, he doesn't have the 20 grand to buy it. The price is news to Carla because they obviously haven't talked about it over the weekend. Peter says it's his problem, not hers. Bollocks it is, says Carla, who has become quite foul-mouthed these days. Mm. So Carla drops into the factory later to tell Stephen that Lou will be coming in for a meeting today and she'll be sitting in. Stephen does a fine job pretending to be cool as a cucumber about this. And the meeting at the factory seems to be for Lou to moan about Rufus's missing watch and the unknown typing with the G engraved on it. Seems Lou has moaned at the cops to at least investigate it. Shall we go on with the fucking tour then, says Carla. Seriously, her language. <laughs> Lou rifles through her bag for a notepad and Stephen spies her hotel room card so makes an excuse about having a different meeting. Next one of the cards pockets it while Lou and Carla go off to stare at Kirk for a bit. <laughs> Outside the factory, Peter's on the phone to his pawnbroker and explains about coming in on the 27th of February and getting 15 grand for the watch. Stephen is leaving the factory on his way to the rape hotel and overhears this. The watch has been sold. Stephen approaches Peter and says Lou is going on about a gold watch and he remembers Peter coming into the factory on the 27th of February asking for Rufus's phone number. This is appalling storytelling. Absolutely. We're supposed to believe mm-hmm. that Stephen has a photographic memory Let's now. Let's remember, he's a criminal mastermind. 
Although he didn't remember that he had left his tie pin in Rufus's house. Right. This is the extension of my intro. Right. And it's true. It is. Doesn't notice that the tie pin's not there. Doesn't right. remember leaving it there. But, but can remember exactly. Peter's conversation Not just that Peter February. came in six months ago into the factory. Something that Peter never does, right? Peter's never in the factory. Oh, no, wait a minute. He's always in the factory. He remembers six months ago, not just that Peter was there, but the exact circumstances why he was there. He was looking for Rufus's number and then decided that he didn't want it. He can remember this. And he could tie that to a stupid watch. And he remembers it immediately. And then Peter, the dum-dum, confesses to Stephen because he's a dum-dum. Why, Peter? Why? Why would you confess to Stephen of all people? So yeah, so Stephen knows Peter knows what happened to the watch. Peter confesses to taking it after Rufus dropped it because people drop watches now mm-hmm. in the back of the cab. Stephen thinks everyone makes bad decisions. It's how you handle it that's important. And he suggests waiting until Carl and Lou are finished before breaking the news. And Peter appreciates Stephen's support in this. Peter it's so historically dumb. hasn't trusted Stephen as far as he could throw him. No. Is now... 100% trusting conf- of him. And confessing to him. Right. Confessing to him and taking in his advice to wait to tell her. And since when would Peter tell Carla about this in the first place? The watch is missing. Well, the watch has been pawned. The watch is gone. The money has been spent. Right. No good comes from confessing this. No. No. Just Carla doesn't need to know. Lou doesn't need to know. Stephen certainly doesn't need to know. No. This all feels so contrived Mm -hmm. because I think, spoiler, Mm -hmm. they've decided to give Peter a break for a while. So Peter needs to take a break. Well, we know that. We need to get him out. We know that. So how do we get him out? We'll need to create some kind of tension here. It kind of feels like the tension gets resolved for the most part this week. No, I don't think it does. I don't know. We'll get to it then. In the factory, Lou is impressed with the factory and has enjoyed her time with Carla staring at Kirk. The two of them are now best friends, based on a 15-minute tour of the factory. That's all it takes. Lou thinks Carla is made to run the place, and Carla thinks Lou might be onto something. And at this, Peter walks in, overhears the part about Carla saying you might be onto something, and sarcastically thanks Carla for the heads up. And at this point, like, what's his problem here? Seriously. Seriously. She might be onto something. There's just something that you say when somebody says something. That it's, right, yeah. It's this no, isn't her say this isn't her saying, yes, I am definitely taking back the factory now. It's no committal. No. It's just conversation. Correct. They've neither lose hotel room card or its little wallet had the the room number on it. Or not that we saw anyway. But Stephen knows which room to go to because it's always the same room. Stephen sneaks in. Wondering where Lou would hide the typing that she apparently told the police about, but didn't give them. Carla says that this is what she does best to Peter. She didn't want to quit in the first place. It was more Peter's idea. Mm-hmm. Well, shoot me for caring about your mental health, says Peter. So Carla quickly deflects back to the watch. Peter was about to tell Lou that it had been sold when he overheard Carla's bombshell of telling Lou that she's onto something. Carla calls Peter a bottle merchant, and the two of them have a ding-dong about how shit Peter is. Carla says Stephen is the only person she can trust at the moment. What? And I'm like, when? When did this happen? He was nice to you one day, 
and that's all it takes? You're Carla. For fuck's sake, start acting like it again. The, this storyline on Monday was just driving me absolutely bonkers because nobody was behaving the way they should be behaving. Except for Stephen. Except... But he now has a photographic memory, right. so not even he's behaving how and, you would expect. And can detect by smell what room <laughs> Lou is staying in. Did mean, he go through the hotel with the key card and just like <laughs> swipe every door until he found the right one? That's what that's what I thought, but it's always that room. Meanwhile, in the hotel, after much rummaging, Stephen finds a type in and Lou's jewellery box, and as he pockets it, he hears someone open the room door, and it's Jules, I think that's his name. Yes. And he's playing a game where he's on his phone or whatever and has his headphones on, so Stephen is able to sneak out of the room without being seen or heard, which is maybe the third most unbelievable thing in the storyline on Monday. But as he sneaks out, Lou comes round the corner. What you didn't hear, she asks... He shits himself and, thinking on his feet, he says that he has some upsetting news to tell her here, outside her hotel room, rather than in the factory earlier. So as Peter and Carla are leaving the factory, Lou comes out of a taxi, all guns blazing about the watch. Stephen has grasped Peter right up. Yes. Peter tells his story, saying that the receipt proves that Rufus wasn't mugged or killed for the watch, and Lou wants to know why he did it in the first place. Peter doesn't want to tell Lou that Rufus was an absolute prick, so comes up with a story about him not missing a 15 grand watch that was on his wrist and he'd had it coming. Well, and obviously not because he didn't miss it because he didn't go looking for it. And then like two months later, he died. He was missing that watch for months. This watch that supposedly meant the world to him and he was never without. He didn't go looking for it. He didn't call the taxi office and say, hey, I think I left my watch in your car. I left my really heavy, chunky watch. That I used apparently to tell the time. And very expensive. He never noticed it was gone. No. Of course, there is evidence of him having that watch after he was supposed to have lost it. But I'm nitpicking. <laughs> Lou is disgusted that Peter and at Califf are knowing all about it. They are no longer besties. She will honour their current contract. But after that, Carla and Underworld are dead to her. Peter is now feeling pretty silly standing there in mm-hmm. his number two shirt. Yes. Stephen is cornered by Peter and Carl in the Rovers. He says he felt Lou needed to know and deserved closure, and he won't apologise for that. Carla tells him that Lou pulled the plug in the deal and his professional judgement sucked, and now she knows that the only person she can trust is herself, and so she'll be coming back to the factory full-time. Yeah. Stephen didn't see that one coming. He didn't, and he, he seems genuinely shocked that Lou is pulling out of the deal. Mm-hmm. Like, what did you think she was going to do? This has backfired on him horribly mm-hmm. because and, and I don't even understand what he thought he was going to get out of this, you know, because obviously he was going to tell her and that's why he kind of told Peter to wait and not to tell her right away. I don't think so it kind of feels like tell her right then. No, because he was forced into doing so because he got caught outside the hotel right. room all sweaty and out of breath. And with a mysterious tie pin sticking out of his jacket pocket. Mm -hmm. But, you know, he was obviously intending to tell her at some point and to hold it over Peter's head and to manipulate Peter somehow. But the fact that he he did not see any sort of repercussions from Lou coming, considering how obsessed she is about her husband's death, seems very stupid of him. Well, 
another thing, keeping with everything that he does, he doesn't plan at all. He just bumbles from one crisis to the next. Any lie will do so long, so long as it gets him out of the fix that he's currently in. And then he'll think of another lie or whatever to tell later, which, to right. his credit, he did hear. Yeah. And he, he eventually does hear by the end of the week. Mm-hmm. So this is par for the course as far as Stephen's concerned. Yeah. He's, he's just a rubbish, rubbish baddie. But because of that, I love him. Right. He's a rubbish baddie who's constantly getting getting away with it, mm. which sucks. Back at the flat, Peter wants to discuss her going back to work and doesn't think she's ready. Carla points out that he doesn't have 20 grand, so she needs to start earning. Peter doesn't want to take the full blame for that, saying that Stephen has his own agenda and deserves firing, which is what Peter should have been thinking all day rather than confessing to him. He knows that Stephen's got his own agenda. He's never trusted him. Right, so why tell him? Carla needs stability with Lou pulling out the deal, so Stephen, for the moment, stays and then we see Stephen on the street surreptitiously dropping the tie pin down the drain right where it bops johnny on the head right and then floats down river gets stuck in a gun yes brilliant on wednesday peter is still in a foul mood with Stephen when they bump into each other at the cafe Stephen wants to move on but peter calls him a psychopath for stabbing him in the back and then takes great pleasure in telling Stephen that his jacket is on a shugly peg at the factory now that Carla's coming back. Now at the factory, Stephen and Michael are preparing for Carla to come back, Michael particularly papping his unders. He reckons when Carla is in beast mode, she always has a takeaway coffee, and wouldn't you know it, guess what Carla has when she walks in? That was kind of hilarious. Yeah, it was. Carla, though, is keen for normal services to be resumed and congratulates them both for the work that they've done in her absence. She also mentions that Lou has requested a meeting later that she has no intention of in- of attending and sends Stephen along instead. Now, get out of my fucking seat, she barks, and mm-hmm. Stephen shifts pronto. That was quite funny as well. That was funny. So, Peter and Stephen bump into each other yet again in Debs. What? <laughs> and Peter's like, you need to stay out of my way. And Stephen's Asshole. like, I live on the same street. Peter warns Stephen that he's watching him and tells him that he's made a big mistake crossing him. Yes. Turns out Lou's business meeting is in the Rovers. Stephen just wants to put everything behind them, but the meeting is for Lou to talk about a stolen tie pin. What? The only logical explanation, given that Stephen was at the hotel... Right, and right Stephen outside her door. It. Yes, sweating and panting and fidgeting in his trousers. Right. Stephen quickly manoeuvres himself out of this, saying that only yesterday she was sure that Rufus was killed for his watch. And look at how that turned out. He denies stealing the tie pin... Well, you would say that, she says. And the meeting is done, and it's unclear how much of that Lou fell for. Right. And I don't think he's really explained this enough. No. He hasn't explained it at all. No. The typing was in the room. Stephen was outside the room. Now and now the, the typing is, is gone. gone. I think that's kind of Occam's razor, isn't it? Very much so. Look at you, quoting Occam's razor. I don't think I quoted it. Well, you know what I mean. Yeah. Referencing it. I did reference it. That's true. <laughs> Smarty pants. Yep. Stephen goes back to make up a story of what the meeting was with Lou and says that nothing has changed with regards to the existing contract. Hey, at least they still have the US deal. Except, didn't Rufus fuck that up too? Yes. Oh, no, 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 wait. But Owen, Owen saved it. 
Michael saved it. Michael saved it with Owen. But is Owen still pissed off at Stephen? And Oh, it, he's it, another one who's just honoring his contract. But what was it? I think Stephen was agreed to pay half of the profit to Rufus. Right, but now he doesn't have to do that because Rufus is dead. Right. But the so the deal's still on. That's that's something though. Yes. Peter and Stephen bump into each other again, this time when Stephen and Carla are in the rovers, and Stephen turns on the charm for Carla's benefit as he apologises again, but Peter calls him an oily beggar and refuses his handshake. Carla, for some reason, is shocked by Peter's behaviour or that Peter hates a man that she also hated a few days ago. So Peter goes home for assault. And still hates. Well, Carla apologises. Yeah. I think she's pretending for Stephen's sake to be shocked because, remember, she wants to... It's kind of the keep your friends close and your enemies closer sort of situation no, maybe, for maybe. the time being. On Friday, Stephen checks in at the factory with Carla, who has a meeting with a big retailer. Stephen offers his services and expertise, and so Carla lets Stephen in on the pitch to Bonbon Boulevard, a, a big European retailer. Yes, that apparently Stephen has worked with before. The meeting with Bonbon goes very well, and Carla is super impressed with Stephen's contribution. All I ever wanted to do was impress you, says Stephen. And that is as far as we get with that storyline this week. <sighs> and that is closing in. Yes. Continues to close in. Not fast enough. No. For and, me. And I think we've got we've got a while to a while to go yet. Mm. Well, a lot is going to depend on what Lou's take on all this is. Yes. I'm really surprised and like I said, on Monday, I was mostly surprised by everything that was going on with this. But if you've got the police to reopen an investigation based on you finding some evidence, mm-hmm. wouldn't they take the evidence? Well, remember, they're just kind of humoring her. Are they, though? But they should have taken the type in, yes. It shouldn't have still been in her possession. No. Especially if it's a piece of evidence that may have, oh, I don't know, DNA and fingerprints on it. Mm-hmm. But again, it's the Weatherfield Police. Craig Tinker, <laughs> detective. I was quite buoyed by the fact that Lou was talking about speaking to a female yes. detective because that typically means I'll get to use my Swain music yes. at some point in the near future, which yes. is never a bad thing. No. Yeah, a, a lot of this, I feel, I mean... It's all manufactured, so saying that something's manufactured really means nothing, but it feels like this conflict between uh, Peter and Carla is kind of exaggerated to make them fall out. We're going back to the old days of Peter and Carla constantly arguing with each other, and and it feels like this is a path that has been developed fairly short notice because because of this I mean you can complain about whether you like some storylines or not but but normally the way that they're they're put together is done with a little bit more care than this where a really important part of this hinges on Stephen's ability to remember something that happened six months ago which clearly is ridiculous yes so it, it feels like that's just there to serve the plot point that pushing a wedge between Carl and Peter so that Peter has an excuse to leave for for a period of time, however long that, that tends to be. And there's right. so many things that were happening this week that seemed to be in support of that. 
that it ended up like Mondays for this to be the kind of the big story that was happening on Monday for so little of it to make any sense was just it just seems a bit sloppy and it seems a bit reactive and yeah and I don't like the fact that in the other important Carla storyline this week Peter's nowhere to be found because you would think that Peter would be very much involved in that yeah. Considering it's happening in the house that he lives in with his wife. Yeah, it's just like there's a, a a very clear line between one story and the next. And normally, again, you would have those little elements from one story that play into the other story because right. the same people are involved in it. And yeah. that hasn't happened either. And Carla in that other storyline does not it does not seem to have this huge thing over her head. And she and there is this important thing that she's going back to work and she does not mention it at all in that other storyline. Right. It, it just seems sloppy. Yeah. She's got time to be changing sheets and doing laundry and... Right. Really? Yeah. And run a factory? No. Hmm. Hmm. Oh, well. We will get to that one. In the meantime, let's talk about our next storyline, which is The Return of the Newt. Just on Monday, which is a little bit of a disappointment after the big play for the Rovers last week that we right. only got a little bit of it this week. But Well... Or did we? Or do we? And we'll get to that again. So Monday in the quad house, Gemma is dressed up all pretty likes ahead of her first day at Newton and Ridley as Henry's important PA. Chesney's in a great impression of being super supportive and has bought her a novelty pen and pad for her important PA type meetings. Yikes. The notepad has a rainbow and a big G on it. And pink fur. G for Gemma. Gemma. Gemma goes into the rovers ahead of her induction to get a second opinion because, well, Chesney. <laughs> but Jenny agrees that she looks smashing. Gemma reveals that she's dead nervous, way out of her comfort zone, but Jenny has every faith in her calling her her secret weapon. Ooh. In Newton and Ridley headquarters, Henry introduces Gemma to Philip, who doesn't seem too impressed with Gemma's notepad and pen. And at the end of the meeting, Gemma brings up the bind of the rovers in front of Philip, who says that they ran out of time to talk about it. Henry reminds his dad about the last conversation he had with HR, so Philip apologises for calling Gemma sweetheart. That was quite funny. It was. Henry, though, retires the fluffy pen and notepad for something more work-appropriate. On the basis that nothing gets said without meaning something, the fact that they didn't talk about the purchase of the rovers felt suspicious. Absolutely. And also the fact that, you know, when Henry and his dad had this altercation about calling Gemma sweetheart, Gemma says, oh, it's okay, I've been called much worse. You know, sort of thing. And Henry's dad seems to be slightly kinder to her after that. Like, oh, this is someone that... I can treat like the the good old days when women didn't run to HR when I called them sweetheart mm-hmm. sort of thing. Well, spank on the ass as she goes by. After her first day, Gemma goes to the Rovers with nothing to report about the purchase of the Rovers. Jenny and Glenda think Gemma is a lifesaver and everyone is counting on her. And that's as far as we get with that. Poor Gemma. Yeah, I'm not sure that Gemma's enjoying the pressure of this. No. I don't think I would either. Because it's not just it's not just the rovers where she works or where she used to work and for Jenny, but it's Glenda's house. It's a lot 
on Gemma's shoulders here in a job that she is not qualified she's for. She's really not qualified for it and has no experience in it. No. And she's not being really given any sort of guidance. No. She got induction, but that's not really training. No. She's got a welcome to Newton and Ridley. Right. Here's a hoodie. Right. Now go on with your work. Yeah, that Here's seems... the handbook. Yep. Here's what to do when Philip calls you sweetheart. Right. Well, that's kind of about it. So, yeah, so she's ill-equipped to, to deal with it. She hasn't had any training. Feels like this is not going to be a long-term appointment. And then we have the fact that the, the purchase of the Rovers is not high on Philip's agenda. No. Although when Henry wanted to talk to him about it, he did seem to know about it. So this isn't just Henry making things up as he's going along. No. He said they just ran out of time. Mm-hmm. <sighs> Which just makes what happens later in the week all that more disconcerting. Right. Yes. We'll move on then to educating racist Kelly. Yeah. Now, I watched this as you were driving back from Chicago uh-huh. with me in the car. I was yes. also in the car, but I was yes. watching it on my laptop. And because I don't I'm, think I don't think I could ever have been prepared for what was going to happen in this storyline on Monday. If I'd had notice of it, I think I might have been forgiven for absolutely dreading it. I dreaded it, but I actually think they did it a bit better than I expected. Yes, yes, I will agree with that. So let's get to it then. Yes, on Monday. Beth is in Nina's roles being served by racist Kelly and there's a disagreement where Beth insists that she's due change from a 20, not a 10. Racist Kelly stands firm so Sean intervenes and it transpires that Beth's 20 is still in her purse so reluctantly she apologises and leaves and Shona is so impressed she calls racist Kelly kiddo. Which I think, given her thoughts on racist Kelly Previously. A, a mere couple of weeks ago is progress yes. at least. Back home, racist Kelly has told Max about her running with Beth and how validated it made her feel when Shona stuck up for her. Max knows how she feels and goes off to make her some lunch as a reward for being smashing at her job. After lunch, racist Kelly wants to talk serious business here. Max said earlier that he was proud of her, so now racist Kelly wants her whole and she moves in for a winch. And Max pulls back. Hey, we're just mates, he reminds her. Mm-hmm. She doesn't know what the problem is because he's not with Sabrina, but that's not it, he tells her. She says that she has enough mates, she doesn't need Max. In which case, go and live with some of these many mates that you have, racist Kelly. Yes. And she grabs her crop top and storms out. She thought he was different, but here he is, not taking advantage, just like all the others. So despite having an abundance of mates, racist Kelly goes to see Roy and asks for payment for her shifts. She says that she won't be coming back. She needs to get away from here, she says, and Roy is concerned, so tells her to take a seat and he makes her something to eat. Plus, he says, he'd enjoy the company of racist Kelly. After dinner, Roy doesn't like the idea of racist Kelly sleeping rough, so Roy offers to book her into a B&B. She doesn't want his money, but he refuses to allow her to sleep rough, so says that she can sleep here instead. Racist Kelly On seems the sofa. Th- Racist Kelly seems to think that she might be in here with Roy, but he says he doesn't want to lose a nice sleep, concerned about her, so she agrees. And she wonders what Roy might need in return. Roy is confused. 
and she talks about Roy having needs and maybe he'd fancy a quick blowy or something. Roy is appalled and yes. thinks there's been a misunderstanding and now racist Kelly is sickened that she's been knocked back twice in one day and one of them was from Roy. But Roy is incredibly understanding once he gets confirmation from her that he had done nothing to lead her on because he really didn't. No. But racist Kelly really is a broken wee girl who has never received anything without having to give something in return, especially with men. She knew Roy was different, but her offer was automatic. And Roy accepts this, but suggests alternative sleeping arrangements and says that he'll call Carla. Racist Kelly asks for a glass of water first, and as Roy is off getting that, Racist Kelly does a runner. <clears throat> so the idea of the story on paper is horrid. Yes. But they really did do it much better than anyone had any reason to right. expect them to do. And, I mean, we kind of knew that she had been involved in stuff like that in the past. Because let's let's not forget, her dad and Griff used her Griff. sexually to get Max. To bring Max into <clears throat> the fold, they sent her to sleep with Max. Well... And so, I mean, one can imagine that this is the sort of thing that unfortunately has happened to her that happens to lots of of young women her age uh, unfortunately um and and so it wasn't hugely surprising and the the way she suggests doing something for Roy for I was needs. I was really afraid that she was going to be much more overt than that when I first heard about this storyline. So I'm glad that she wasn't. You often hear people talking about, they hear somebody else say something. Mm -hmm. It's them that's saying it, but they hear it as somebody somebody else saw it. And it looked like that kind of -of out-of-body thing, um, where she certainly looked like it was an automatic question that wasn't, something that she was she wasn't like flirting with him no and she wasn't starting to take her clothes off or anything no, like that or she anything wasn't, horrible like that it was, she wasn't putting her hands on him right it was just if you now require something in payment right. then then fair enough right sort of thing yeah yeah i know what you mean with the the griff and and her dad stuff i never i'm so naive i never thought that <laughs> It was more a, a sexual thing, but it was you want to become his girlfriend, sort of thing, right, just yeah. just to get him more into the yeah into the racist club that, right. that we've got going here. Yes, and she'll she'll say something or she won't say something later on that kind of gives a little bit more weight to your suggestion of mm-hmm. um, of what her history has been like, but. Yeah, I thought this was a incredible scene. Um, Kate Fitton, who plays Racist Kelly, finally being given a chance to do something a little bit, a bit more yes. than than what she's she's had to do before, and right. and give a little bit of dimension to the character. She apparently was in for the role of Summer when Harriet Bibby got it. Wow! Can you imagine? No. <laughs> Not at all. That summer can go from that wee lassie to, well, I, I guess 
She'd they be would, wardrobed better. Right, she would stuff. be wardrobed the way <clears throat> Harriet is wardrobed. Right. You know. But I and, still can't, I can't quite see it. And, you know, and Hope and Ruby are wardrobed. But no, but, but here she did a... She did a, a remarkable job. She did selling, being that that broken, right, broken wee girl, and and almost, well, not really, almost, absolutely brainwashed. Yeah, and uh, and it, this is how the world works. Sort of right, thing. it was yeah. really that was that was quite moving. Because mm-hmm. when it was starting to happen, I was like, oh no 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 no, what are you doing? Mm-hmm. And I. St- I Still wish that it hadn't happened, but, right, yeah. but the way that it did happen, I think, was probably yeah, the best that the, we could this, hope for. Yeah, it wasn't, it wasn't conniving. It wasn't manipulative. It was just this is the world she knows. Mm-hmm. She hasn't known men like Roy before, right? Or even boys like Max, really, right? You know, because lots of boys Max's age would take advantage, mm-hmm. and Max didn't. Max. A few months ago, probably would have taken advantage. Do you think he would have? I still don't think that he would have. I I think before he went to prison, he absolutely would have. Oh, maybe. I think he is a very different kid than he was beforehand. That's right. It's easy to forget about about his history. The upskirting Mm. and the date rape drugs. Let's not forget that. He is that kind of boy. He was was that that kind of boy. boy. Yeah. Yeah, so these, these two people who not back her advances it was when she said she thought that he was different <laughs> well he is different right he doesn't want that no he wants to be your mate he doesn't want to right. he doesn't want to mate nicely done thank you on wednesday in the morning a worried roy leaves a very long and verbose message for shona <laughs> wondering where racist kelly has gotten to and as ever he finishes his message by telling her it's roy by the way Max can't get a hold of racist Kelly neither. Shona has spotted that her stuff is still there, so she'll likely be back. She and Max must have had a chat because Shona says that girls just don't like being turned down by boys, and so she'll be embarrassed. In Nina's roles, Shona hasn't heard Roy's message because she doesn't do messages. So she and Roy talk about racist Kelly's whereabouts. Roy thought that she might have been at number eight. Why would you think that? asks Shona. And Roy looks pensive, so we can guess that Sean's right. about to be filled in about this as well. Yes. Racist Kelly returns as predicted for her stuff. Max says how worried that he was after the little embarrassment yesterday, at which point Shona comes in and catches the last bit of this and says that she sympathises that she's done stupid things in the past too, although she's never offered to give Roy a blowy. But hey, horses for courses, eh? <laughs> Racist Kelly is mortified and Max is just made of questions. <laughs> Max says Roy an awful lot and says this is a lot to get his head round. Racist Kelly says it's all about you, isn't it? But she's more concerned that Roy is okay, which Shona is able to confirm. This will let Racist Kelly leave with a clear conscience then. And Shona's shocked that she's planning on leaving. I do stupid things all the time, she says, but then again I was shot in the stomach and now have a brain injury. And everyone laughs. Racist Kelly needs to get away. Max asks if this is his fault. She laughs it off again, making it about himself. Then the show looks like it's about to undo all the good work it's done here by having racist Kelly sit on the stairs and have a long monologue about her relationships with men and repaying kindness with sex, but it's quickly cut off before it does too much damage. Max feels bad for her, but says that, she, but she says he feels more for Sabrina, which she's never denied. 
He says that they're still mates, but she thinks that's easier for him than it is for her. Lucky Sabrina, she says. She gives Max a hug, thanks him for everything and leaves. She doesn't do serious. Tell Sabrina, I don't send my love. Sabrina's done nothing wrong here. I don't know why. No. <laughs> Mrs. Kelly goes to the cafe for a word with Roy. She apologises, which she accepts, and he's happy never to mention anything that happened on Monday again. And he's keen to tell her that he's doing the rota, but she's not changed her mind and is still leaving. He offers to keep her position open until tomorrow, hoping that she'll change her mind. So, Mrs. Kelly, after this, I'm not too sure what happened here, but she sneaks back into number eight while no one's at home. Right. Pinches the keys for the salon flat. Or the salon? The salon. And a couple of crop tops while she's there. And then she leaves a message for Roy asking him to put her on the rota for next week after all. Mm -hmm. So So she's she's back to sleeping in the salon? Yes. But this time not even Max knows. So she will get caught. And people will see her in Nina's roles and say... What are you doing here? Yep. And where are you staying? And how is she going to answer that? And also... She's staying with mates. I'm just staying with mates. And also, those keys will be missing. Somebody's going to be wanting those keys and not be able to find them. Doesn't Max cut her a set? I thought Max cut a set. I don't... Especially so no one would miss them. I don't think so. Yeah, I think that happened. And if that's the case, then why would she be looking around for them? And why would there be more than one key? On oh, that I don't role? think she had them. I think it was Max that had them because Max kind of locked her in and then went to unlock her. Right. So I don't think. We need to ask Stephen. I'm sure Stephen knows the answer to this. He'll remember what happened. Mm, I don't want to talk to him. He's <laughs> a bad Ohioan. Yes. Although, congrats to Ohio for getting out there and voting to keep abortion. Good job, Ohio. Oh, did they? Yes. And I think they're getting weed, too. <laughs> yeah, weed. Big week for Ohio. Yes. I felt like we were probably close to saying, maybe not a fond farewell to Racist Kelly, but mm-hmm. a farewell to Racist Kelly. No disrespect right. to the to the actor, but the character feels like she's kind of served her purpose a little bit and caused this rift between Max and Sabrina that we're all quite enjoying. Right. We're not enjoying the rift. We're enjoying no. Sabrina and Max. Mm-hmm. And and Gaviano 2.0. Just call him Gav. No one has called him <laughs> Gaviano yet. So yeah, I don't, I don't know. I just... Yeah. Haven't, haven't we had this character too and, often, too recently? Yeah. Because it's Kelly the Chin again. Because that's why she's racist, Kelly. Right. Just this strafe that is going from pillar to post and living rough and, and yeah. doing whatever she needs to do to survive kind of thing. Right, but yeah. I wasn't looking forward to this being a, a long-term a long-term deal. No. Or her being in Max's life for long for any length of time. But it, it feels like she she's going to be for a bit longer anyway. And like I said, no... Nothing against the, the actor. I think she's certainly proved her, yes, her worth this week. Absolutely. But, but again, it's just when we've got when we've got racist Kelly so close in, in time and and motivations to the Kelly the Chin, and then we've got Cassie coming in who feels very Abbey two as well. 
Absolutely. And we just just be recycling things a little bit too often and too obviously here. I don't know. We bet. All right, then. We'll move on to our next storyline, which is a risky business. And this is a storyline that I think maybe has a little bit more going on underneath the hood than maybe initially appears. Mm. On Monday at the Baileys, Ronnie drops in to make the exciting announcement that their last house has officially sold. So we were just talking about this last right. week. What happened to those houses? Well, well, they've all sold. They've been selling like hotcakes. That's what's happened. Off in this screen. economy? Yes, in this economy. Right. Off screen. This warrants a celebration, says Ronnie, who suddenly sounds very West Indian. And he and Ed head off to the pub. So Ed and Ronnie are hitting hard stuff early doors. Ronnie toasting the work that he and his brother did, which proved to be a great way for them to reconnect. Ed is sad that the work is now closed, but Ronnie wants to double down and take this to the next level. Later, Ronnie wants to get a mission statement that defines who they are as a business. Michael comes in and learns about Ronnie and Ed going into business together. So back home, the three of them are now trying to come up with a company name, and after some shitty suggestions, Michael suggests Eddie Ron Developments. This is also shit, but they all agree to it. On Wednesday, Ed, Ronnie and Michael are eyeing up potential sites for their next project. Ronnie is keen to get going, but Ed is overly cautious, which drives Ronnie crazy. Zero ambition, part of least resistance. He advises Ed to try something new for a change. So later in the Rovers, Ronnie and Ed are having a drink. Ronnie doesn't want to fall out, but Ed thinks Ronnie had a point. He can be a cautious Carol. A cautious homeless Carol, perhaps. He has zero ambition because he's made so many mistakes in the past. Ronnie thinks that he was too hardcore earlier. Maybe they can find a happy medium. A happy homeless Carol medium, Hmm. perhaps. And then Ed says he'd prefer... Cautious Curtis, because he is quite happy in his sexuality. Thank you very much. On Friday, Ed and Ronnie have made plans to have a celebration meal at the Rape Hotel, where nothing good ever happens. (laughs) So at the Rape Hotel, we'll learn that Debbie's given Ronnie mates rates on the meal, but then she notices that brewery owner Philip Newton, because we're getting some news out of him this week, and food and drink retailer Jason Waterford, whoever he is, are meeting up. (laughs) Ronnie reckons maybe the pair of them are homosexuals, but that's not what Debbie (laughs) smells about to go down. She can feel it in her urine. When Ed arrives, Ronnie can't wait to start gossiping about the heavyweight meeting. Ronnie reckons that they should make themselves known just in case any big business is about to need some building work. Ed thinks that'll look like an ambush. Ronnie calls it a business opportunity and he goes off and introduces himself to Philip Newton at the bar. Newton says that he doesn't need builders and doesn't appreciate the pushy scouting for work in a bar. Ed tries to pull Ronnie off when Ronnie like Waterford arrives and he is just as unimpressed. So later at the bar, Debbie has arrived when Ed is excited to take a call about a kitchen extension which does not get Ronnie's pulse moving. Debbie, work though, is work, Ronnie. Right. Shut up. Debbie, though, is still sure something is going on with the bigwigs and she goes off to find out what. She grabs a drink service for the table to go and do some digging. And later, privately, Debbie explains that she spilled drinks deliberately on their documents and took them away to dry them off, during which time she photocopied them and then returned them, and Newton and Waterford didn't suspect a thing. Because of course they didn't. They're they're old white men. They don't think a woman is smart enough to do that sort of thing. But these are important documents that you wouldn't really let out of your sight, regardless, I think. Meh. 
The documents confirm that Waterford is buying Newton and Ridley, and Debbie reminds him that he can't tell Jenny. That's Ronnie. That's. Mm-hmm. She reckons that he should plough his money from the houses into Newton and Ridley shares, because once this uh, takeover is confirmed, the prices are going to skyrocket. This is insider trading, says uh, says Ronnie, but Debbie tells him he's not an insider, so it's all kosher. Ronnie and Debbie tried to sell Ed on the insider trading malarkey, but Ed's not for budging, says that playing the stock market is too much like gambling, and Aggie would fucking kill him. It's true. So he's out, and he storms off in the huff. Debbie, though, doesn't think this means that Ronnie needs to be out. No. And Ronnie, I think, is far happier to play fast and loose with his morals here. Right. And that's as far as we get with that. I love this because it reminds you why Ronnie and Debbie work as a couple. Because they are of the same stripe, playing fast and loose with, with money and and letting their morals loosen a bit mm-hmm. when it comes to making a quick buck mm-hmm. and, and being sneaky. But what's the upshot of all this skullduggery, Helen? That Jenny may not be keeping the rovers the way that we thought she would be keeping the rovers. Yeah, if Newton and Ridley are going Selling. to be bought over, yeah. then anything that they're about to buy, one would think, would either be cancelled or would have to wait until the sale had gone through. Or, or you know, he's they, they make a big deal about this food and drink guy being really into old pubs and everything. So so he's going to want to buy the Rovers, but he's not going to want the Rovers to be the Rovers anymore, I think is the way that this is heading. That all the things that Henry promised Jenny are in jeopardy. What I want to know is, how does Henry not know that his dad is selling the company? Right, that's exactly what I was wanting to know. There's no way he wouldn't know, and yet it doesn't seem like he knows. Henry's not just some anonymous executive. No. He's the son of the owner. Right. So he's privy to this sort of information. Or and he I think, should be. I think Henry should, or Philip should be sharing this information with him, especially if it's at the, at the point where paperwork's getting drawn up about right. it. Right. <clears throat> that he and would, also, should probably know these things. Why are they drawing up paperwork in the restaurant of a hotel. Oh, because the, the the place to do it that makes sense means that this story can't happen. True. That's why it makes sense for it to happen where it should be happening and not here. Right. Where somebody can spill champagne on it and then take it away and read it. But we would rather that the story hunt was allowed to happen. Are we? So maybe Henry does know. That's what I'm thinking. I don't feel like I don't feel like Henry would know. If Henry knows, Henry can say, yeah, we'll buy the Rovers back and knows that he's never going to have to put his hand in his pocket. But in the meantime, he can say to Gemma, come along and work for me and can get his grubby little mitts on her or try to anyway. Because regardless of the Chesney situation or the Quad situation, I think he's still still a fan of the Gemma. Well, who's not? So this is still... This still can happen, and then when the deal all falls to pieces, well, he can he can claim that he knew, he knew nothing about it. So I think it's a, a fairly it's a fairly easy position for for Henry to have. I have greater faith in Henry. I don't think based on I don't know based on nothing that he's ever done before. 
based on the fact that he almost died thanks to Jenna and Chesney. And so he's a better person now. He mm. seems like a better person now. The sale of it probably does either kill the deal with the Rovers or delay it. Or it has to do something to it. It, it, it. What it does is this guy is going to get the Rovers and is going to want to change it and want to fire everyone, including Jenny. That's what I think is going to happen. Because they make a big deal over and over and over again how much this guy likes old pubs. Well, the Rovers is an old pub. Right. So he's going to want it, but he's going to want to run it his way. And we don't know what he likes to do with old pubs. I saw a comment on Twitter from uh, John McNee. who said he's not sure how but thinks that this is going to end with Debbie running the Rovers. <laughs> and you know... <clears throat> Debbie is quite happy <clears throat> with her rape hotel. But everybody wants the Rovers. Debbie doesn't want the Rovers. Everybody wants Nobody the Rovers. Nobody wants the Rovers anymore. Those days are over. I can see that happening. <sighs> we just now finally got her out of the bistro so that she could be more <laughs> than just... A face behind a bar. But then look what's happened. She's she's not in it hardly ever. Yeah, but when she is, she's great. <laughs> this is true. She's great here. She was great with Ryan when Ryan got the acid attack. You know, being another mother to him. I just know this means that Jenny's not going to get exactly what she wanted. She's not going to get exactly what she wanted and she might not get anything of what she wanted. She might end up losing the Rovers after all. Yeah. Which would be sad, because we like Jenny at the Rovers. Right. But it does mean that that storyline that lasted last week has a little bit more heft to it. It's not just a, this was a problem on Monday and it's resolved by Friday. It's certainly not resolved, because despite the fact that I thought... It had all been because they confirmed it verbally. That means that the deal's done. That's not the case because we've made a point on Monday of making out that right. nobody's talked about anything. And then by Friday, there's all this talk of takeover that's that's right. going on. So it's still very much a fluid situation. I did think that Ed was absolutely right, and I was glad that he said it, and I was glad that he described it right. this way. That that this involvement in the stock market is absolutely like gambling yes it's more educated gambling but it is still gambling yeah but there's something a little more honest about a horse racing other horses whereas you can have who knows what's going on in these company boardrooms where the share price has been manipulated and somebody short selling somebody else while it's more sophisticated it feels like there's probably more going against you than than with you and it, it's certainly a gamble yeah but all of life is a gamble isn't it <sighs> yes okay <laughs> all right Oi. well i guess we better move on then yes to jalifbra <laughs> on wednesday Ryan has taken another consignment of steroids that he quickly has to hide when Carla knocks on his door. He's also behaving like he's lost something, and I wasn't sure what it was. I think it was a syringe. Was it? Carla brings news of Alia wanting to meet him for a sandwich at Roy's later. 
And in Nina's roles, Alia is glad that Ro- that Ryan could come along, but he's not hungry or chatty at all, and he soon leaves her to it. Mm-hmm. And once again, I'm left to shake my head at the stinginess of Roy's sandwiches. <laughs> On Friday, <clears throat> Ryan is out of the shower and about to inject steroids in his asshole when he discovers Carla is in his room tidying up. Carla's in a chatty mood, which Ryan can't be fucked with, and he snaps her to bugger off so he can get dressed. Put out, Carla slinks out of the room so Ryan can get on with that lovely injection. And then as Carla shouts cheerio to him from the other room, Ryan punches fuck out of his wardrobe and breaks the panel off it. Yeah. Later, Ryan's been out for a jog and has been hitting the tarmac hard and hitting the energy drinks even harder. And as he gets back to the flat, he collapses as Gary, a fellow bra, is passing. You okay, bruh? Just breathe, bruh. Take a seat, bruh. I got you, bruh. Gary wants to call an ambulance, bruh, and worries about Ryan's pulse, his caffeine intake, and wonders if Ryan has been using anything else because he seems quite agitated and aggressive. Yes. Ryan snaps at his bruh, but then quickly apologises. And he goes back to the flat with flowers for Carla to apologise, which is just as well because she's seen the state of the wardrobe. He makes up a story about shadow boxing with weights and slipping and he accidentally punched fuck out of it. She's worried that he's becoming addicted to exercise. And lately... Oh, if she only knew. He's been a bit of a shitbag to be around. And she misses hanging out with Ryan and watching the movie, so he suggests that they, they do just that. And goes off to his room and bags up his steroids, seemingly keen to stop pumping his arsehole full of the muck. And that's as far as we get with that this week. It's, it's interesting, isn't it, that... It's it's him being a shit to Carla that shocks his system, mm-hmm. you know, more than nearly having a heart attack on the street or, you know, being a shit to Daisy. Yeah, he was clutching his, his chest, so it yeah. looked like he was, he was suffering more from the steroids and the fact that he was running really hard, like he was having palpitations or something. Right. And Gary seemed to recognise this. Yes, he did. Because he did ask him more or less directly mm-hmm. if he was taking anything else. And I, I don't know how Ryan really responded to that. No, we don't get to see his response. This clearly isn't it. No. He's, he's bagged all the stuff up, but I don't think mm. he's thrown it out. So no. this is not going to be something that goes away quickly. I'm still surprised that this has kind of developed as quickly as it has. I think at the most he's maybe been on steroids for a month. So maybe this is... This is how it manifests itself. I have absolutely no idea. But he is he is full on roid rage and if he started to shout at Carla and especially with this storyline not involving Peter at all. Yeah, which is shocking to me. Could Ryan get violent? He's already punching wardrobes. Right. Just because she said Churiotium. Right, yeah. Nobody wants to see that. No, no, nobody wants to see that at no, all. No, nobody wants to see that. I, qu- but I quite like liking Ryan, more right. or less. But you know what? Because of the fact that nobody wants to see it, we're going to see it. Yeah. Yeah, that's a bit disappointing. I don't know if Gary can help, if, if Gary's involvement in this is just done and dusted, but it feels like he needs, he needs another guy about his age to try and pull him away from this. Right. And that means either Gary or Craig. But none of this stops the fact that what he's suffering from is the fact that he's just... He's insecure about his face. So he's developing his body. You can do that without steroids, so... Right. Well, just a quick penultimate storyline 
dying to learn. On Friday at Eileen's, Todd's getting ready for work with George, still wanting to celebrate Todd winning Young Funeral, Funeral Director of the Year. Todd is ready to learn more about the business, George admits, in what he hopes is a light-hearted anecdote, that he enjoys massaging corpses, which is enough to put Todd off his bacon butty. Yes, he also talks to them. Yeah. They, they tell jokes to one another as one is going into the crematorium furnace sort of thing. I think this is, he's going, he's starting his funeral director training to get licensed. Yes. Yes. And later in the pub, Todd is the natural with dead people apparently, which make, which did make me wonder what the fuck he'd been doing for the last couple of years. But he's, I think as he says, he was kind of front of house. Yes. So he's learning the dark arts. Yes. The secrets of the burial. Yes. At home, Todd is still studying or whatever when George comes in with a surprise. He's got new business cards drawn up and Todd's name and award are mentioned proudly on them. And George is super proud of Todd. Oh, and Todd is chuffed. Mm -hmm. It's so sweet. I love the scene so much. Well, a proud Eileen looks on at both of them. Was it pride? Yes. Because Todd was wishing that he knew who nominated them in the first place. Right. And at that, it cuts to Eileen, who looked like she was smirking. Yeah, but she's thought, also... Did she nominate? She's quite proud of him. That's her son. Oh, how he's turned out compared to how he's been is... Yes. I love it. This is a, I love this it is so honest much. work. I love it so much. And <coughs> he's compassionate now instead of trying to steal people mm -hmm. from other people and being mean. And here we were, or here I was, just a, a few weeks ago when Todd won the award and said that he was going to study for his undertaking or funeral directing qualifications. Uh -huh. We will never hear of this again. And well, yet now here we're we he are, hearing of it again. Right, because it's hilarious because he's talking about dead people and talking about their flesh and everything. And then Jenny brings over a hot pot and has to mention how particularly tender the meat is this week. Oh, meaty. <laughs> Lovely and meaty. I'm wondering if, because we keep on mentioning it, the nomination, if that, if that's important somehow. And I can't figure out how it could be important. Well, it's, it's motivated him to get his funeral director's license. And these are all more or less, at this moment, comedic characters. This is our lighthearted bit about death. Yeah, but we don't keep on mentioning the fact that the whoever nominated them is a mystery. We don't create that mystery without it needing resolved. And we also have the whole resolve needed of um, that oh. guy leaving his card in his pocket and the undertaker stealing it. Yeah, I reckon we're going somewhere with it next week. The fact that this was the little sting on Friday. Right. The really short storyline that didn't I give wonder you if it was that dude who nominated him because he well, thought it was, was an easy win for his girl. But I'm kind of left to assume that if Todd hadn't been nominated then the girl would have won it by default from being the only nominee. I don't know. I, I guess that... that the, I think there were other nominees that we just didn't get to see their interview that they were interviewing them two at a time. For... For story purposes. Yes. Yeah. I think the rest easy guys probably coming along next week. We don't... We're just setting that up basically this week. All right. So our last storyline of the week is your special. So special. Uh. 
That would have been a better song to choose. On Monday. At the community centre, Little Big Shots or whatever it's called, are still unfortunately singing Lizzo's special, where Lizzo sings about being black and heavy, so maybe it's just as well Hope didn't get the gig. Glenda is thrilled with the way that rehearsals has been going. At the end, Jerry comes in for his Tai Chi shite, and we learn that there's been a clash for the final rehearsal and the performance. The big performance. Jerry has the community centre booked all day. Oh, pig's tits, says Glenda. So Glenda and Tyrone and the girls are chatting about the double booking for the final rehearsal and the actual performance. Tyrone suggests finding somewhere else. Great idea, Tyrone. But that's what Glenda's been doing. It's Hope that has the game-changing idea. Speak to Maria and see if the council can come up with a venue at short notice. So Maria and Gary are celebrating their third wedding anniversary at the Bistro. It's been three years! They got married in COVID. Remember, this was the, the big separation wedding. Right, yeah. Gosh. And they've lasted three years, which by Coronation Street standards is fairly decent <laughs> Old timers, yeah. And I have to say, for the main part, over those three years, it's kind of worked, hasn't yeah. it? I mean, apart from them nearly splitting up in divorcing, it's kind of worked though, hasn't yeah, it? Yeah, it's worked pretty well. I think Maria is really good for Gary. I actually kind of like Gary now. I like the two of them together. Yes, and, me I, too. and now that we're not even pretending that Gary's possibly the main supervillain. God, doesn't that feel like forever ago? Oh gosh, it's a breath of fresh air. Yeah, he's never he's never going to get his comeuppance. There's nobody to come up on. No, to everyone's deed, right? Or moved in with the doctor. Moved in with the doctor. Where's Kelly now? Oh, that doctor. I thought you meant Gareth. No. Marie and Gary are celebrating their third wedding anniversary at the Bistro, where Glenda and Hope and Ruby, but no Jake, drop in to tell Maria about the double booking for the summer spectacular. Hope wants Maria to get those jobs worth at the council to find a new venue. Maria doesn't think it's possible, so it's up to a man, a proper man, Gary, to suggest to speak to Nick and stage it at the Bistro. Right, Nick, the only one who has a child this age who's not in Little Big Shots. Every other asshole in the town does it, so why not kill the trade for an afternoon by having kids sing Lizzo? Brilliant idea. (laughs) On Wednesday, now that Ruby being able to sing is canon, we have Ruby 2.0 singing in every episode, and here she's taking the Marcella Detroit part of Stay by Shakespeare's sister, while under a blanket, a goth-up hope is Siobhan Fahey. It's fairly dreadful. <laughs> Sadly, though, Tyrone has been recording it in portrait, not landscape, so the performance is wasted and the kids will need to start again. They're disappointed that Fizz won't be at the Summer Spectacular, and at this rate, neither will Nana. Tyrone threatens them with a trip to Norfolk. But Nana is back and is helping Cassie move into one of the flats uh, at the precinct, above one of the charity shops. In the flat, Cassie has had enough of being locked up and wants to meet her new family, but Evelyn is still worried that she'll go straight back on the muck. Cassie says she has something to focus on now and asks for day release or an hour release or five minutes to go and get a coffee. Evelyn relents and mentions that it's a summer spectacular today. Cassie tells her to go if she wants to, but Evelyn doesn't want to. and The kids just want her to be there. She gives Cassie ten minutes to go for a coffee, but as soon as she turns (laughs) her back, Cassie spies Evelyn's handbag. And more than 10 minutes pass and there's still no sign of Cassie returning and the money has been taken from Evelyn's purse and that's because Cassie has decided to go and see the Summer Spectacular. Backstage, 
and the kids are nervous as Glenda gives them a pep talk. Hope tells Ruby 2.0 that this is her chance to finally get noticed. So the summer spectacular seems to be in total. The kids singing that fucking Lizzo song, and maybe they sing the Shakespeare sister song as well? Who knows? Ruby is still nervous at her solo, so Hope helps her, and the two of them sing it for a bit before Hope gives Ruby the stage, and it's a huge success. Remember, says Glenda, everyone is special, so please treat your dancers and background artists with the respect that they deserve. Yes. Well done, Eliza, says Stu. Fuck off, Grandad, says Eliza. <laughs> everyone leaves without buying a drink. Cassie approaches Tyrone and the girls and congratulates them all. Tyrone wonders if Cassie has heard from his nan. And the boys, for some reason, in the Summer Spectacular, are all dressed like the Beastie Boys? Or are they dressed as Run DMC? I didn't really notice them. I noticed that... They're in, like, tracksuits with hats. Joseph wasn't happy. Whoever was happy. Joseph is never happy. Well, this is true. (laughs) So Cassie and Tyrone go for a wee side chat. And she stumbles her way through her excuse of where Evelyn has been and as she's about to spill the beans, Evelyn bursts in and drags Cassie away. But Cassie shouts at Tyrone, I'm your mom, you're my boy. I'm like, really, that's how we're going to do this? I had this all mapped out that this right. was going to take weeks. Right. But she does it immediately. And I guess this is in and line with a character who wanted to do this before she left. Right. And also in line with a character who is an addict who only thinks of herself and doesn't think about how this is going to affect everyone else. Right. Tyrone is confused just by the sight of Evelyn, never mind what's just been said. My mum's dead, he says, tell her nan. But Evelyn just hangs her head and apologises. And Tyrone storms off in a rage while Evelyn gets torn into Cassie for telling Tyrone in such a cruel manner. Roy goes to see off. <laughs> furious Tyrone telling about Yelling about how cruel all of this is, Roy points out that Evelyn is worried about him and thinks the best course of action is for them to all get round the table and calmly talk it through. So Evelyn and Cassie go to see Tyrone at home and they sit round the table, but the talk is not calm and basically revolves around Tyrone being confused and angry and Evelyn and Cassie blaming each other while trying to get into Ty's good books. Cassie calls him son at one point, which he reacts very badly to. You haven't earned the right to call me that, he says. Evelyn admits that she's known that Cassie was alive for nearly a year and addicted to painkillers. Was that what it was at the time because of your panic attacks? But she didn't know what to do for the best. Tyrone is hurt that she watched him get married and not say something, but she says that she didn't want to ruin his day, and after never hearing from Cassie for ten years, she assumed that she was dead. And we learn that Cassie was on the muck while she was pregnant with Tyrone, and getting to raise him would have been the wake-up call she needed. Well, that explains a lot. But if Evelyn had allowed that... They would have both been dead. Yes. Tyrone now wonders why Cassie never got in touch with him. Because she was a junkie, says Evelyn. Cassie says that she was clean while she was in South Africa and this prompts a question from Tyrone. How long have you been back, he asks. And she refuses to answer, saying now is what's important. And during all of this, Evelyn and Cassie seem to be destroying any relationship they've managed to foster over the last few weeks and months. And Ty goes off to get the girls. And he goes to pick them up from Roy, and they are very interested to learn that the weird woman at the show is Tyrone's mum. You could have a brother or a sister, says Ruby 2.0, and what was a throwaway line that will no doubt come back to haunt us. Ty wants them over the road and straight to bed. It's a five-hour drive to Norfolk. Oh, they really are going to Norfolk then. 
Yeah, it was the way that Ruby said, oh, you might even have a brother or sister. And then nobody mentioned anything about it. And it was like, Right, and everybody well. ignores Robbie. Ru- Robbie, Ruby. But all this reminds us that Alina Pop's still not come back with Tyrone's latest offspring. <laughs> Correct. Because surely, surely that's happening at some point. Eventually. Probably Christmas. <laughs> Didn't we say <clears throat> that last Christmas? And I think, well, when did she, well, she probably had it last Christmas, right? So this would be. I don't remember. Yeah, I think it was. That was two around, years but, ago. No, I think it was due last Christmas. Hmm. So Tyrone gets home and Cassie regrets not getting to tell the girls how good they were, which allows even to sarcastically say that meeting with them, bonding with them, and then disappearing for years is a great idea. Ty has heard enough. He throws Cassie out, and then just as Evelyn is about to make herself comfortable, he throws her out too. And that felt a bit cruel. Hmm. Understandable, though. Well, here we are being asked to take sides on this, right? <clears throat> or at least Ty's been asked to take sides on right. this. Right. And he, and he, and I think this is the right choice for the moment, decides that neither one of them need to be in this room at the moment. I have to come to grips with this on my own. Yeah, I don't think Tyrone has ever learned as much in one episode of Coronation Street, as he learned on Wednesday. Right. On Friday, Hope and Ruby are getting on Tyrone's tits with questions about Nan and Tyrone's mom. Ruby is very keen to make it clear she's expecting a decent haul of presents. Tyrone wants nothing to do with Cassie, though. Meanwhile, Evelyn and Cassie aren't talking at the flat. Cassie would rather Evelyn shouted at her and both of them blame each other for how things have ended up. Evelyn's interested why Cassie stole from her handbag when the Spectacular was ticketless and Cassie accuses Evelyn of calling her a liar which Evelyn has no problem in confirming. Fuck this for a game of soldiers, Evelyn says and she heads off to put things right. So Tyrone gets in to work later and is in no mood for Abby and Kev's shit patter about the best kind of crisps. Kev checks to make sure everything's okay just as Evelyn turns up to explain how sorry she is. Tyrone thinks that this is a bit late but Evelyn says that he doesn't know the whole story and she made the right decision. Tyrone doesn't want people making decisions for him though so Evelyn leaves their their new address and walks off. Later in Nina's roles Ruby is sad about Evelyn being away and wishes that she was going to Norfolk with him. Hope explains to Roy about the arguments with Grandma Cassie and how Tyrone is furious at Cassie and Evelyn. Nina tries to distract them by offering to take the girls to see Little Mermaid and Hope is very keen about this. Yeah, while pretending not, not to, to be. Not to be at all. Yeah. Evelyn goes to unload on Roy. Roy does have sympathy with Tyrone's position on all of this. Evelyn has been making decisions for Tyrone and Cassie which has had a detrimental effect on both of them but Evelyn shows no remorse. As a friend, he urges her to reconsider how she deals with people that she claims to love. In the pub. Which is very astute of Roy. Yes. And only Roy could tell her that. Oh God, yeah, nobody else could tell her that. In the pub, Tyrone fills Abby and Kevin. Abby reveals the weird conversation she had with Evelyn a few weeks ago and Abby knows how difficult it can be to handle an addict. Yeah, and bravo, bravo, Abby and the show for remembering that conversation. Well, she's allowed to remember that conversation because she hardly ever talks to Evelyn, but what she didn't do was remember the exact date of it. Right. It wasn't so long ago that Abby was ready to give Alfie up, but Tyrone knows that Abby changed her mind and Cassie never did. Abby thinks he should tread carefully before allowing Cassie into the girls' lives. Yes. 
And I thought what Abby was going to do was basically say, you know, give her another chance. But what she really did was say, you need to be very careful with how you handle this. Right, yeah. Which, you know, only Abby could tell him and and be kind of the voice of reason that you would think Tyrone would consider her advice more carefully. Mm-hmm. And yet. And yet. And yet. Even gets back to the precinct apartment to find Cassie doing the washing up, and in a flash, Cassie is already blaming her mother for everything. There's a knock at the door, and it's Tyrone, but he isn't there to see Evelyn. He's here for a private word with his mum, and Cassie can't hide her glee at this. So Evelyn gives him space. Tyrone wants to know why now. Why now, after 40 years? Cassie blames her South African boyfriend, who isn't Ty's dad, by the way, and she doesn't know who Ty's dad was. And it seems although... She doesn't, doesn't explicitly say it. It sounds like she prostituted herself, right? She's keen, yes. She's keen to blame Evelyn for as much as she can, but Tyrone isn't accepting it as simply as that. Cassie admits that she was a mess, but again blames Evelyn. Her childhood was unhappy. Everyone was miserable. She was an anxious child and drinking at the age of 12 helped. And then she moved on to the harder stuff by 15 and things got nasty after that. When her dad died, Evelyn blamed her for the stress and spat in her face. Literally spat in her face, I think we're led to believe. Yeah, which I don't believe. I don't believe that for a second. I, I, I can imagine that Evelyn would have been a nightmare. Yeah. And, and especially if you're a, a junkie, she right. would be a nightmare to you. But right. I don't think she's going to spit in your face. Right. And, I mean, she does blame the stress of... We, we, we know from her conversation that she's going to have with Roy in a second that she does blame Cassie... For the stress that killed her husband. Mm -hmm. But there's some validity there that both she and Tyrone seem to want to skate over at this moment. Cassie left home, lived in the streets and wound up pregnant. Tyrone says that Evelyn said that she never wanted him. She just wanted to score drugs. Cassie says Evelyn wanted to poison him against her and let him think that she was dead, even at his wedding. She didn't stay clean before because she had nothing to stay clean for. Evelyn and her control is at the root of everything, according to Cassie. And now she's off the muck. She intends to stay that way mm. for him, Mm-mm. which is never a good idea. No. Do it for yourself. Yes. Later, Evelyn comes back with her ears on fire. There have been a lot of decisions made in her absence. Cassie's going to be moving in with Tyrone and Evelyn is gobsmacked. Just yesterday, Cassie stole money from her handbag and Cassie again swears that this was for the spectacular. But Evelyn says that that was free and ticketless and Tyrone oddly has nothing to add to that. Right, yeah, this is, it was weird that Tyrone does not say, yeah, no, she's right. She's right, yeah. It was free. Evelyn says there was never a good time to tell Tyrone and she was just trying to protect them both, but Tyrone has made his mind up. Cassie will live with him for a bit, the girls will go to Norfolk on their own somehow and Evelyn will stay at the precinct flat. So back in Nina's roles where it seems Ruby and Hope have just been abandoned for the day, Tyrone brings their suitcases to the calf. seems Kev's going to drive them halfway to Norfolk, and then Fizz will meet them up or they have to hitchhike or something. Who cares? <laughs> they know Cassie's at home and do not appreciate not getting to meet her, but Tyrone is struggling quite a bit with all this new information and just needs them to do as they're told. So the kids are off, and Cassie and Tyrone resume their discussion. It's lasagna for tea, apparently, and everything just feels a little bit weird. Meanwhile, Roy takes some food round to Evelyn. You can see things from Evelyn's position now. Evelyn is sure Cassie is using again, but has no proof, but she can just tell. 
and Tyrone is too trusting and daft. Yes. And Cassie will take advantage. Of course. Evelyn has lost years of her life to this. She knows what she's talking about. And sure enough, when we go back to Tyrone's, Cassie's hiding a box of prescription painkillers in her bag, presumably what Evelyn's money went to. Cassie quickly stuffs them away and toasts with Tyrone to the future. Have some cheers. And that's how we end this week's episodes. The one person whose whose advice is the most sound. That advice is not taken. Although, in fairness, the girls are going away and she's not going to get to meet the girls. Right. But she did hang about the door and made sure that she waved them off. Right. Which was, really? Yeah. Can you not just... Can you not just stay out of this right and she can't because she's an addict Mm -hmm. and it's all about her right so she has to be visible in order in order for it to work in her favor Mm -hmm. you know and tyrone's gonna get hurt and that's really sad and you're right you're right um when you said earlier about Cassie seeming kind of like abby Mm 2.0 although i don't think she's going to get the abby 2.0 redemption story well or not junkies always get the redemption story or they die right it kind of feels like it might be that second one i don't think so i don't think claire sweeney is here for the for the short game i think claire sweeney has better things to do than be a junkie on coronation street which is why she will not be a junkie on coronation street for very long it was the on coronation street (laughs) part that was oh no this is this is i think I think she's quite pleased with this. Um, you know, just like what's her name, who who zapped Jenny. We thought she would be on for a while, and then she oh, just Sharon. left. Yes, the the similarities are there, right? And you can argue that they're very different characters, if you like. But I think the 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 source and the the genesis and the and the show is is pretty much the same. Abby was horribly selfish when she was still using and when uh, she had the kids and when Seb was still alive. And it really wasn't until everyone realised, well, wait a minute, Sally Carmen's pretty fucking awesome here. We better better give her a little bit more to do. Right. That the character started to improve and really turned her life around and and all that sort of stuff. And this seems very much off that ilk that... um, Cassie, I mean, as much as you can complain about the retcon of the of Tyrone's early years, right? I'm glad that Evelyn's in it. This is a, the best thing that's happened to the show in a long time. Yes, and I think Cassie, as a actor and a character, is is probably good for the show as well. But it, it is treading this old this old kind of ground where we've we've seen the. We've seen the junkie that you want to trust, but you can't. And and she's already proved in right. the first week of being back, the first right. couple of days of being back, that she can't be trusted because she's got the drugs in her bag. Right. And also because, you know, she promises her mum she's not going to do something, then she turns around and does that exact thing. Mm-hmm. I have no doubt that her upbringing was tough. Right. It's like Evelyn as a mother. Would be tough. Would be hellish, potentially, right? Yeah, well, especially if you're a teenager. That's, yeah, that's, that's, those two things aren't going to jive very well, and especially if the if the home life was as she describes it. Yeah, yeah, I can imagine that being being pretty tough. I'm sure the home life is not exactly how Cassie but describes I, it. I don't think so either. 
because she is an addict and she's going to twist. There's, there's always a grain of truth, Mm -hmm. but she's going to twist it her way. And the way that it works is because of that one little grain of truth. You know, she's already doing that. Everything is Evelyn's fault. Nothing is my fault. Everything is Evelyn's fault. Yes. Yeah. No, she hasn't apologized once. Whereas Evelyn is constantly apologizing for this, Mm -hmm. you know, and maybe that the reason that she didn't want Cassie in Tyrone's life is because Cassie is just a bad person. Yeah. She seemed like a bad person. Right. She seems worse than Abby was when Abby started. Oh, Abby was awful. I think it's it's easy to forget how bad Abby was when she first came into the show. Mm. She was dreadful. Mm. But Cassie is up there. Yeah. And she's manipulating them already. Yes. And... And she's going to steal money from him. And I think because Tyrone knows how much Evelyn can demand control and right. and just release information as and when she wants to, it's easy for Tyrone to be very much believing of what Cassie says to him because it rings true for him that Evelyn has kept things from him and she's... She continues to keep things from him. She's right. She's never an open book for him. No, but she's never an open book for anybody. Right, which is which makes it even easier to believe. Yeah, and yeah, but in believing he, Cassie, he's ending up believing everything that she's saying. Although right. I think he's he seems to resist it a little bit. Well, he did in the beginning, and you know, with the with the pressuring of why now and why didn't you look for me sooner? You know, because. It wasn't that hard for Tyrone to find Evelyn when he really put his mind to it. Mm-hmm. When he found out that that he wasn't really a Dobbs. She really has made no effort. No. Until now. No. So why now? And now she hasn't really made the effort at all. She was just looking for her mom and that's when she realized that her mom, her mom had found Tyrone. Right. You know, and this is a way to hurt and manipulate her mother. Yeah, that's that's really interesting because it feels, at the moment, that this, that that that's what this is about. Right. It's not about her, her getting a relationship with Tyrone, even if she says that that's what it is or right. that's what she tells herself. But every minute she's in that house with her feet under the table. Right. It's a fuck you, Evelyn. Right. Yeah, and the only reason why she was looking for Evelyn is because she was butthurt that Evelyn left her alone for like a weekend to go back to Tyrone right. and the girls. Yeah, it's a complicated relationship. Yes. Um, I agree that Tyrone's going to get hurt so much. I wonder what Fizz is going to do when Fizz eventually comes back. Because yeah, when, Fizz, when, when the girls get to Fizz and Fizz hears about what's happening... Well, I wonder, does Fizz know this? Because Fizz is having to meet Kev halfway and there's bound to have had questions about that. Right. That should really facilitate her coming back sooner rather than later to see what the hell this is all about. Right, yeah. Fizz wasn't all that trusting at Evelyn to start with, I don't remember. But she'll have the... She'll have the make of of Cassie right right quick. Because her upbringing wasn't that easy either. No, no. And she's not nearly as trusting and dumb as Tyrone. (laughs) Right. 
Yeah, I feel sorry for Evelyn and all this. I mean, I don't think she's played it perfectly and I don't think she's played it entirely right. But No. And she's not... She's not entirely... this. She did what she thought she was right in order to protect Tyrone and the girls. I don't think she w- she is necessarily right in having done so. I think if she had come clean, maybe not at the wedding, but shortly thereafter said, look, what happened over Christmas was I found out your mom actually isn't dead. Mm-hmm. and But she's close to it because she overdosed again. And you know, you, it may be best to stay away from her because of the girls. Right. You know, if she'd been honest, but that's, she's the type of person who likes to take command of the situation, believes that she knows she's best. What she thinks is best is best. And it is kind of nice how protective of Tyrone she is and how much she loves him and Fizz and the girls. Yeah, I agree. But in that situation that you described, what she would have had to have done is leave it up to Tyrone to decide what to do. And she could have played it clever and and pitched in such a way that Tyrone doesn't want to. But right. just because he doesn't want to now doesn't mean to say that he wouldn't want to next week or the week right. after that. And, right. she, and she can't not be in control of it. Right, yeah. But... What happens instead is that she completely loses control and Cassie takes control. And that's the worst possible outcome. Right. And that's where we are. Yep. And that was the week that was Coronation Street. Helen, tell me, what was your moment of the week? Todd getting his cards. Really? Yeah. He's so proud. And and George is so proud of him. And I just really love that relationship, that paternal relationship that Todd gets from George, you know, and he seems genuinely chuffed by those cards, you know, he does. It, it feels like he's finally getting validation and he's finally found something that he's good at. And I thought it was just really sweet. You know, I think there are moments that you were supposed to pick. Yeah. And I think the reasons that we were supposed to pick those moments is kind of why we don't pick them sometimes is right. because... It's it's somebody's big scene and right. this is a me explaining everything scene and sometimes right. that isn't always the best to watch. Although I do think that the couple of times that happened this week were done pretty well. Yes. And could have been done far, far more heavily handed, especially in the racist Kelly story. I think I think we have given it to Evelyn about Cassie already fairly recently. I was never going to give it to the whole racist Kelly propositioning Roy even though it was done very well Mm -hmm. that is a moment to forget (laughs) not moment of the week and you know and I just the relationship between George and Todd feels like one of the most genuine ones on the street lately and I just I really want to reward it because it's just it's it's so nice because each of them gets something out of it. Right. No, I'm not going to disagree. That's our moment of the week. week. Did you see the photographs of them for the TV Times? I think it was. They were dressed up as Laurel and Hardy. <laughs> I have not seen that, but now I desperately want to see that. Garth Pierce makes a good Laurel, a better Laurel than you'd you would think. Right. 
Oh, of course, Tony Maudsley is hardy, hardy is, is perfect. Tony Maudsley <clears throat> is a national treasure. Your boring moment of the week. <sighs> well, is it is it the is it the manufactured tension of the of the summer spectacular? Maybe it's 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 Tai Chi Dave and Glenda going over the schedule. That's what tai it Chi is. Tai Chi Dave. <laughs> no, that's not his name. What's Jerry? <laughs> tai Chi Jerry and Glenda going over the calendar. Yeah, that was pretty dull. That's yeah. it. I'm sorry, Glenda. And Tai Chi Dave. <laughs> tai Chi Dave. All right, we've been doing this last couple of weeks, so uh, give us your score at 10 for this week's quarry. Oh, God. Seven. <clears throat> I think I gave it a big old eight and a half last week. I really enjoyed it last week. I didn't really enjoy it that much, as much as that. I thought there this was really good, there were really good moments in it this week, but... Do you know what really ruined it for me? Was all this shit on Monday with Stephen and all those bits of the... Where Common Sense just absolutely vacated the script and vacated the storyline and you had so much nonsense that we were expected to believe. That really killed a whole third of what we got uh, from Corey this week. So I'm yeah, going to absolutely. give it... I'm going to give it a five and a half. Ooh! Five and a half's... A, a better than midway, so only slightly. Yeah, <laughs> not by accident. And you watched Strays today. I did. I don't think I scored that very highly. Either. No, you gave it two and a half stars. No, oh, well there you go. I'll, I'll go and <laughs> give it two and a half stars, and if it does anything good, I will give it more, and if it does anything bad, I give it less. Huh. Two and a half. All right. So this episode was brought to you with thanks to our friends of the podcast that's daisy french helen and pickles so if you've ever snuck into somebody's hotel room to steal a type in how did you get away with it because there was somebody right there with so little sensory perception anyway if you have no sensory perception Write and tell us about it we're the talk of the street at gmail.com and we're at Corey podcast on twitter facebook and instagram and threads I think our time on Twitter might be coming to a close. Yes. You can shout me and Helen a coffee or become a friend of the podcast by heading to ko-fi.com. That's ko-fi.com slash the talk of the street. Check out the clicky clicky section of boggle.co.uk for links to our YouTube channel and merch store. And if you're so inclined, please leave a rating and a review on the iTunes or your podcast provider of choice. And be sure to check out our pop culture sister podcast, The List of Lists. Which has already left Twitter. Thanks for making it to the end of another episode. And we will be back next week with more. Our talk of the street. The talk of the street. Bye. Bye. Cheerio.